Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Today on the show, we have for you two medical experts at the top of their fields. Stephen Cordner was appointed Foundation Professor of Forensic Medicine at Monash University, as well as the Director of the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, just as I was graduating from medical school in the late 80s. So unfortunately for me, I never got to uh, any of his lectures. Now, cut to 2014, and he retired to take up heading the Institute's international program. Stephen's passport is crowded with the stamps he's gotten from work all over the world with the International Red Cross, the World Health Organization, and human rights groups. Currently, his focus is on the Global Research Initiative in Forensic Medicine and Human Rights, known as GRIFM. And Stephen will be telling us about some of his amazing work, as well as looking at the recent Kathleen Folbig case. Our next guest has fewer frequent flyer miles, but is no less impressive. He's also younger, so he's got a few years to catch up to Stephen. Associate Professor James Trower is head of Monash Uni's epidemiological modelling. Think databases, not catwalks, as well as a practising respiratory and sleep physician. James's models have been used by governments and the World Health Organisation, otherwise known as WHO. His current clinical work focuses on cystic fibrosis uh, at the Alfred, but he also has experience with the clinical management of tuberculosis and sleep disorders. Now, sleep disorders include things like insomnia, and he will be talking with us about insomnia today. Now, if that isn't enough high-powered health for your Sunday morning, we've also got for your entertainment pleasure, Nurse EpiPen with over four decades of hospital experience. Well, and I say that out loud, it's just, it's astounding, it's monumental. And Dr. KitKat, PhD, clinical psychologist who knows pretty much every DSM-5 diagnosis by name and code. And I'm going to test you later, KitKat. It's going to be a jam-packed show. So stick with us for the next morning, uh, for the next morning, for the next hour of radiotherapy. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Do you know what? Today, riding my bike in from Hawthorne East, it was one of those days where you say, sunny the one minute, Melbourne the next. (laughs) (laughs) I've been rained on. I've had sunshine on me. And I'm frozen to death. Uh, Dr. KitKat is nodding in agreement. Yes, yes. The Melbourne, I mean, when you talk about Melbourne weather, I think we all know what you're talking about. Just <laughs> go into, I remember, yeah, at times going into class and it's raining, coming out and it's really boiling and sunny the next, having to strip off layers. Just <sighs> I made the mistake right. of thinking, oh, I'm going to walk to the city because I had to do it on the city um, last night. No, no, you'll walk at sunny. Like about half an hour later, I'm like searching, scrambling for cover. Yeah, that is Melbourne. Now, we've got lots to talk about today. We do have some ketchup and I can't – now, which one of – I am. Oh, Kit Kat. Yes. Ketchup, do tell. Before I actually jump into that, mm. um, Mal – I thought I would just clarify for the listeners, I'm a clinical psychology registrar. Oh, I can't okay. quite use the clinical psychologist title yet, although I'm very close, I hope. When does that happen? Oh, hopefully by the end of the year, I'll be able to apply for that. Um, but I just thought I'd clarify. flag that. Yeah, yeah, just, um, yeah, as part of APRA requirements, it's a protected title. Is it <gasps> yeah. protected? So just, yeah. just take me through this very briefly. If From start to finish, if you were yes. to do 
get through every single year full time if you when you finish high school how long would it take you to become a clinical registered psychologist um so three years undergrad one year honors two years masters and then you have to do like x amount of hours i think 2500 or something hours post graduating from the masters of clinical psych as a clinical psychology registrar, so it's, I guess, continued training, closely supervised. Like an internship type of thing. Yeah, yeah. And then after you reach all those hours and pass certain, I guess... So like seven, eight years. Yes, yeah. And then if you do a PhD on top of that, it's 10 years at university almost. That is a long time. Yeah. I'll say. Of course. Um, Yes, but yes. But yes. (laughs) Not rigid. Not... not, This is... Not the point of the catch-up. This is a hot topic. Hot topic. Ah, yes. It is a hot topic. So I guess in tying with the themes that we've talked about, a lot of dementia and cognitive decline in previous shows, um, recent research is um, starting to explore the... I guess it's like capsicum or chilli in um, its protective factors of dementia. And so researchers at the University of Southern Queensland have found that chilli might be effective in preventing dementia um, by, I guess, reducing the um, inflammatory response Mm -hmm. in, um, I guess, blood vessels and improving vessel, I guess, and heart health. I wonder how they came to that kind of idea in the first place. Just they found people that ate chilies just didn't get dementia. Well, and... Yeah, so there was a study done. Only one study in humans has been done in China, and that was based on self-report measures of yeah. people over forty, um, how much chili they ate, and did a I guess cognitive assessment. Mm. Um, and they found that people who ate more chili also had better cognitive health, um, based on a. I guess self-report. So that um, would have been an association rather than a cause and effect. Yes, though, yeah. um, and they also noticed that the association was stronger in younger people, but that was also typically because um, they thought that older people prefer more bland diets, oh, so younger people were eating more chili okay, anyway. Okay. So they, yeah, there's needs to be research done in human populations, and that's what they're starting to look at. Um, and again, always taking this research yeah. in the context of the complex relationship that is. I guess, preventative measures for dementia. Um, and it's this is not a new idea. Research has been looking at turmeric and other kind of yeah. spices in helping cog- cognition. Um, but it's not, you know, going to solve everything. So it's always keeping socially active, physically mm-hmm. active. Mentally active. Mentally active, yes, are also combined to help reduce um, cognitive decline. Didn't, now we, we had on an old age psychiatrist a couple of shows ago yes. and what were the things? It was like dancing. Wasn't dancing yeah, supposed dancing. to be good and yeah. crosswords and things like that? And and also these are sort of opportunistic things where you could sit and swap hands to write with or your mouse. Or, or you, you brush your teeth yes, with your left yes, hand. I've started yes. doing that. Yeah. Have you? Yeah. They're a bit so, furry. No, no, I've noticed that. I'm not doing as good a job. Yeah. So doing something different, getting your brain to, to, to do things a bit different. Yeah. So with this chilli stuff, I mean, was it like chilli in a powder? Was it chilli in a meal? Was it? So there's already this supplement, I think it's called Capsa Max, right. that is out that you can buy yeah. um, off already. Yeah. Um, and it is, uh, yeah, it is a supplement that they recommend taking and it's at reduced levels or they do some fancy science yeah. stuff so it's less... Um, in- irritating yeah. on your bowel. Um, and they found, yeah, there's a supplement already out there that a lot of people, 
I guess it can help burn more energy. Um, and but we haven't had complete studies on this yet? or There have been some studies. Right. There was a review that this um, research team, I think Edward Bliss mm. is one of the researchers, and I remember Great that name. name because I love, I, love, yeah, yes. I love that surname. Um, yes, they, there's a review attached to the ABC article that um, I'm referencing, and they've found, yeah, that Capsimax um, can reduce or increase energy expenditure, and some people use it, I guess, in terms of training at the gym. I really? guess it's like a pre-workout. I've never heard, I've never heard of, of this before, really. Yeah. Okay. Um, Might and it, look it up. Yeah, there is some it, – it sounded like there was some evidence behind it, like there were a lot of citations in this – Right. In the report. But it hasn't, it hasn't become part of sort of standard medical treatment. No, no. not in terms of dementia yeah. and cognitive health. It was yeah. more, I guess, about um, weight-related I haven't outcomes. seen that either, yeah. but um, what do I know? Because I don't read that, that, that sort of literature. Um, now, yeah. why am I looking at you, Nurse EpiPen? Quizzes. The quiz. Yep. Are you the Should quiz master? Get, yeah, Let, let's yep. get into the quiz. Should we go for it? Let's get into the okay. quiz. Okay. Okay. Really, really hot topic, another one. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Okay. Female soccer team. Yeah. Oh, yes. Can't think. Okay. Called, what's their name? Matildas. And- <laughs> she Very loses good. a point. Yeah. Okay. Why are they called the Matildas? Um, because waltzing Matilda. <gasps> Got it. Really? So okay. well, that was a question. Yeah, that was a question. Oh Bonus points. Yeah. Can you name two players on the team? Sam Kerr. Yes. All right. I'll hand that over to you. Right um, <laughs> Mackenzie something, the Ooh, goalkeeper. Yeah. Yes. Beautiful. Yes. That'll do. Okay. Beautiful. Okay. Um, the next thing that's a bit topical. Is this medically related? <laughs> yeah, no. Well, to... It's to do with psychological health. Oh, okay. All of Melbourne is buzzing. That's true. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, next one is, and this is healthy, yeah. okay, um, if you ingest healthy. something that you think might be poisonous, yeah. where do you go? What do you do? I'd call up the poisons line. Yeah, what's it called? The poisons hotline, no? Victorian Poisons Information Centre. What's the number? 131126. 131126. So if you're worried about ingesting a poison or somebody else has ingested a poison. Look, I've done, this has happened to me once when... I had a pack of, um, was it Panadol lying around? And I saw my little boy and he was like two years old and he was playing with it and there were like four missing. I like freaked out. Four. So the first thing I was, I don't know what to do. Like it's those moments where you don't know what to do. If I would yes. have had that number, I would have called that number. I ended up calling the GP. Yeah. And he said, no, it's yep. all okay. Yeah. So, so, and where is it housed? Could you guess? No. Where's what housed? This um, Victorian Poisons Information <laughs> Centre. Uh, no, office somewhere in Melbourne? At the Austin Hospital. Oh, there you go. There you go. So none of us It's got a, a point. 24-hour service. 24-hour mm. service. Yep. yep. Okay. okay. Now, this is a really hard one, and neither of you will get this. Oh, oh great. I love a challenge. Okay. <laughs> Think of a fruit. Yeah, got it. Or it's a, sometimes it's not always called a fruit. It's a herb, theoretically. What are we what? genetically linked to? As in Yeast. 60% of our DNA matches this fruit slash herb. This is re- your... Tomato. Keep going. Banana. <gasps> you got it. <gasps> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Very believable. Very credible. <laughs> yes. So what, 60% of our DNA is the same as a banana? Yeah. No way. Many of the housekeeping genes that are necessary for basic cellular function, such as replicating DNA, controlling yeah. the cell cycle and helping cells divide, are shared between many plants and animals, and including bananas. I am stunned. I've really learned something today. I love that term, housemaking genes. <laughs> housemaking? What is yeah, housemaking? Yeah. What's like, that like? Can I squeeze in one more? Can yeah, I squeeze in? Okay, what's the festival that's on in Melbourne at the moment? It goes for two weeks from the 3rd of 
3rd to the 20th of August. Is it the lights? No. Is there a light? No. Is that August oh. or no. the Italian? No. Film Festival. Film Festival. Yeah. Melbourne International Film. Film. Yes. <laughs> and a big plug, I saw a fabulous yeah. Japanese film yeah. called Perfect Days. Oh, I saw a trailer for that. And, and really, yeah. it's about a toilet cleaner in Cho- Tokyo. Oh, so it's like uh, Kenny. It's like Kenny, but much, <laughs> much not as silly, but equally yeah. as fun. Okay, terrific. You've heard it here. You heard Triple it here up. first. And I am like a banana. Um, we are going to play some <laughs> sponsorship announcements and then come back with Professor Stephen Cordner. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We're back on the waves, and we've got <laughs> we've got Professor oh, Emetrus. Professor Stephen Cordner. And I was saying to Mal, I don't think we've had an amateurist professor before. So we've had lots of professors, but now we're seriously graced with your presence in the studio. Um, Stephen, I just, even what Mal was saying about your introduction is just phenomenal where you've been. And you have been on our show before and you've spoken about going, uh, working in Sierra Leone with the Ebola um, story and you came on and told us about that. But let's refresh ourselves and think about what, how did you get into uh, forensic pathology and what is it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, look, thanks for having having me back here again after the last time. And um, uh, so forensic pathology is a, is a medical specialty and it's a medical specialty of death investigation. So that's um, in a nutshell what it is. And, and in places like Australia, um, the specialty works within the coroner's system. The coroners are lawyers and magistrates who, um, who provide the sort of final... Uh, product which is, you know, uh, a judicial overlay on what the forensic pathologists do and provide, amongst others, police investigation, special things like toxicology, and um, uh, other other special contributions. So, forensic pathology, death investigation, doctors supported by lots of other um, inputs. So this is going to be a dumb question. That's my role here, Stephen, is to ask the dumb questions. When you were um, training, did you ever watch Quincy M- MD? <coughs> yeah, yeah, I did actually. Yeah. Um, and uh, ME was... ME, sorry, yeah, medical examiner. Uh, yeah. Medical examiner. That's a sort of American term for what we do. And the Americans are... The ME in America is a sort of a hybrid of what I am, a forensic pathologist and a coroner. So they actually also make the final conclusion that this is a homicide, for example, ah, or a suicide. That's a difference. Um, and make conclusions about the overall circumstances. But Quincy M.E. was actually one of the better, I think, shows. There's some, there some pretty average uh, representations of what oh. we do. That was a bit uh, bit on the upside. See, I was going to ask you, so you read my mind, like, how accurate was Quincy? Because I, <laughs> I loved Jack Klugelman, you know. And it was, you know, there's always reasons why you go into do a profession and... Um, did Quincy have any effect on you? Well, no. I mean, he, he, I don't think he had anything specifically um, to deal with. And I think, you know, um, some pathologists are refugees from, refugees from other more clinical branches of uh, <laughs> medicine, which is where, of course, the real, the real action is. 
my father was a GP, and, you know, he was a fantastic GP. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, EpiPen nodding ahead because uh, her father and mine were very good friends. Oh. Um, and they graduated in the same year. But um, uh, so he was a great doctor. He could do things that I just really wouldn't do. So he could actually, as a GP, he could do bits of surgery, appendicectomy, take out tonsils, really? fix wow. broken arms. You know, he could. I just couldn't do that. And yeah. I'm sure I would stuff it up. <laughs> so. Um, uh, but I have loved forensic pathology because yeah. it's it's problem solving, yeah. and everybody interesting jobs tend to have quite a high element. I think of mm. problem solving. It doesn't matter what the problem is; it's just the engagement mm. with I've got to fix this and work it out. Mm. Yeah. So apart from you are going to speak with us about the Kathleen Folby case, but does any other really really interesting case spring to mind that you've been involved in? The oh. super sleuthing of... Well, I mean, um, Kathleen Folbig really is a once-in-a-lifetime right. um, sort of case. Uh, and it's difficult, so difficult to talk about it because it is, you know, Kathleen Folbig is a real person mm. who's had a real uh, shocking experience of spending 20 years in jail for things that um, she didn't do. And um, it's extraordinary to think, isn't it, that you can get convicted of murder and there was no crime. Mm. (laughs) I mean, it's not that somebody else did it. Mm. It is that the wrong decision was made about what was the nature Mm. of Mm. these Mm. deaths. Mm. And then um, a person, a mother, who's suffered, suffered, the death of her four children, is then thrown into jail. For 20 years. I mean, it just does not bear thinking about what the sort of experience that must be Mm. and what an aggravation of of the shocking tragedy that uh, Kathleen Folbig has endured through her life. I I read one statement that you had said, that there Mm. is no merit in forcing certainty where there is uncertainty. And yeah. I think that's – isn't that what we do in medicine? We want evidence before we jump to conclusions, start treating people with different drugs. And you and 120 people or how many people were involved in this case that started to work and – Yeah, well, look, um, uh, so I'll call her Kathleen. She was – I think she called herself Mrs. Farbig back then. She calls herself Miss Ms. Big now, I'll call her uh, Kathleen. Um, she was convicted in 2003 and it's only in 2023 that um, she has been pardoned at this point, awaiting the formal inquiry findings. Um, so your question really is... Um, how did it all happen? Who yes. was driving this? Yeah, it was yeah, in Newcastle, yeah, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. Were there a- so, yeah. So... Um, She was convicted in 2003 and then a woman by the name of Emma Cunliffe, an absolutely brilliant um, Australian legal mind but working in Canada, wrote a book um, called Murder, uh, Myths, Murder and Motherhood. Um, And that was really the book that set this whole thing off by demonstrating in you know, really very clear terms that uh, this was a wrong conviction. Mm. 
And uh, so that was back in about 2011, sort of spent 12 months over the kitchen table writing a report for the Newcastle Public Interest Law Centre, a fabulous example of pro bono sort of community-based legal practice, legal practice, um, you know, doing their best for on a purely philanthropic basis wow. to help yeah. uh, people in difficult um, circumstances. So Mrs uh, Kathleen Folbig needed all the help she could get, surrounded as she has been by fabulous friends uh, who have just supported her um, through this, particularly in the last 10 years. And, um, yeah, look, it's a long story, EpiPen, but um, uh, so that report formed part of uh, an approach to the Governor of New South Wales for an inquiry. The report was tendered in 2013. Have a guess... How long it took? Oh, ten. Sorry, yes. the report was tended in 2015. It took three and three years and three months for the government to, Attorney General, it has to be said, uh, to make up its mind to have an inquiry. Uh, so they made up their mind in 2018. They had an inquiry in 2019, which gave Kathleen Fobig the thumbs down. So uh, she would have felt that that was you know, the end of everything. And then the genetic, new genetic evidence, which meant that people simply could not close their eyes to the um, clear failings, (laughs) has to be said. And uh, so the genetic findings of what's called a channelopathy, which is genetically determined abnormality of the rhythm of the heart, which the experts say, is pathogenic and is really the explanation for at least two of the four children's deaths. And I was reading that the person that dis- d- discovered the gene was Corolla Garcia yeah. de Vinueza. Vinueza. And I, I was trying to remember how to remember this name of the variant. So it's CALM2, which is linked with other um, yeah. neurodegenerative sort of um, things, but I thought calm. Is that her first mm. name? Ca- Carmen, was it? No, Corolla. Corolla. Oh, so yeah. why calm? But I, I don't know why it's called calm. Do you oh, know? Oh, there's a calmodulinopathy. Ah. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. So, you rescued me. <laughs> I thought well, you were doctors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not good ones. <laughs> yes. No, well, this is all new stuff, but um, so Carola Vinueza, who is an absolutely top-of-the-range um, molecular biologist, medical molecular biologist, um, she and her team absolutely nailed this. And uh, they had that those findings in time for the first inquiry and the first inquiry looked at those findings and accepted evidence that they didn't really mean very much. So, so just, you know. Just take us through what these findings are. So there's... Um, there's a particular genetic variant that is rare, I would say, and that does something to the heart, and it does something to the heart in young kids. It it it's it makes the heart beat abnormally and stop. Is that right? Well, look, I'm not a calmodulin pathologist, <laughs> but um, yes, look, that basically it is very rare this particular one. Mm-hmm. But there are dozens and dozens mm. of genetic abnormalities mm. which uh, cause arrhythmias 
in the heart. Yep. Um, and uh, so generally speaking, they're all uncommon all yep. there, but when you add them together, they add up to a significant sort of burden mm-hmm. uh, of disease. Mm. So these were known about, not, mm. not the CALM2 defect, but mm. there were a couple of dozen known about at the time of this trial mm. back in 2003. Um, although they sort of they weren't built into the ordinary approach to unexpected death in infancy, but this calm two gene affects the um, uh, the flux of calcium going in and out of cells, mm-hmm. particularly important for um, neural cells and, mm-hmm. and and heart cells. So um, these children, two of the the two girls who, mm-hmm. who were the third and fourth deaths mm. uh, demonstrated to have this gene. They were found dead unexpectedly. They've mm. got no injuries. Mm. There was no history of abuse or neglect or mm. no history. No one ever saw um, uh, Kathleen Folberg mm. mishandle or misuse or abuse her children. I mean, it's a sort of almost slam dunk mm. Uh, mm. sort of diagnosis and um, uh, and that's what Carola Vinuaza did and hats off to her. Yeah. So as a forensic pathologist, how would you go and would you get – you can't get blood because how, well, how do you <coughs> so extract always, the yeah, – yeah, yeah, there's always a bit of histology yeah. material. Um, so it took a while for people to work out how to get the – DNA out of formal and fixed tissue. Not easy, but it can be done. So all of these four babies had uh, histology samples from which DNA was able to be uh, uh, rescued. What so. do, what does this teach us? I mean, if there's a, le- I mean, there's many, many, many yeah. lessons. I mean, yeah. just you know, I mean, I'm, I've asked you the question, but I'll give you my answer. It's that it it just it, first of all, it's it's it's, it beggars belief that, that this poor lady has suffered. Um, but then also, what does, it, what does it teach us about evidence and medicine? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question, Mel. Um, uh, it teaches us that we have to be humble. Mm. It teaches us we have to be really careful. It's, there's lessons for everybody here, the, the barristers, mm. the other lawyers, the judges... Mm. Uh, communication with juries, mm. the words we use, the concepts we use, um, the, uh, this is Kit Kat's space, the diaries, which were supposedly mm. evidence of what yeah. uh, Kathleen Folbig had done, you know, with the diaries of a grieving mother were interpreted as mm. uh, evidence of actions that she had mm. uh, taken. And I think if you read those diaries... Um, and you put yourself in the frame of someone who's um, uh, someone who's uh, lost their children, when well, you can see that mm. being written just as a response to that. Mm. But the last thing I'd like to say about that, um, mm. you know, what can we do about this? Australia needs a criminal cases review commission. If you are in jail, wrongly convicted, you are legless. You, you, in Australia, you've got nowhere to go. It took Mrs. Falbeck, Kathleen Falbeck, 10 years, hmm. supported by pro bono effort from outside the prison, 
you know, it's just serendipity mm. that she mm. has been able to get out. There's no question there are other wrongly convicted mm. people in prison and in Australia we have no mechanism for um, providing any possibility that any number of those people uh, will be able to get out. So the British have a Criminal Cases Review Commission. Mm. We need one in Australia. The Canadians are about to get one. New Zealanders have got one. Australia, I would mm. think, thinks we've got a world-class criminal justice system mm. and we've got lots of elements of it, mm. but one big cog missing. Mm. We do have an innocence project where mm-hmm. people can claim if they've gone in. Yes, for, yes, yes. But it's not, don't, not powerful. at all based on pro bono, you know. Is Again, that something yes. you can be proud of, that actually you've got volunteers um, mm. sort of helping people yes. who then might have yeah. been wrongly convicted? It needs to be a properly set up. It's not actually expensive. So you mean something like is it the Southern Poverty Law Centre in the states? Is that is that philanthropically financed? I'm not sure if whether it's state. I don't know about that in the state, but the states don't have one of these, and uh, they they need one even more than we do. But uh, so, um, uh, but I can't I cannot overstress uh, the need for um, one of these in Australia. So I was reading, and your contribution to the case for her to be pardoned was 121 pages long. Well, that was just the first report. (laughs) No, Uh, no, but look, um, uh, that was the longest report I've ever written, you'll be glad to hear. (laughs) Uh, But it did take 12 months to write. Pro bono. And that that was, you know, sort of totally, completely dismissed by the first inquiry, basically, who, you know, just sort of took a look at it and sniffed. Mm. And... um, uh, but it did help things along in the second inquiry, I think. Um, and what did you say, what was the essence of that report? Ah, well, what was the essence of uh, 121 uh, <laughs> pages? Well, You've got uh, 35 seconds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think the, the essence was even then, before the, um, before the advent of the genetic evidence... Uh, I reckon there was explanations, uh, perfectly plausible, good explanations for two of the four deaths. Now, the prosecution case was it all four are murders or none. They didn't say, oh, well, three's enough. Their, their case was Kathleen Foley killed all four. OK, so the, the corollary of that was if you can show that one of them wasn't our case, the prosecution fell over. Well, I reckon in two cases it was sort of pretty plain on the available material that you could explain their death perfectly adequately and that was that Laura, the fourth child, had myocarditis. You know, do you want myocarditis, inflammation of the heart muscle? You know, I mean, you're a walking time bomb, really, Uh, although you can have myocarditis and and be fine and not even know you've got it. But it's also... um, seriously, potentially Mm. fatal. Mm. So that's the first thing. Uh, The second child, Patrick, actually had a shocking seizure disorder. Mm. So he was having seizures, you know, regularly. He was being admitted to hospital (coughs) regularly for seizures and he was found dead. I Mm. mean, that's perfectly reasonable explanation Mm. for his death. So, but that sort of really didn't have any... um, 
great impact at the first yeah. inquiry, in, unfortunately. In, in the time we've got remaining, Stephen, I mean, you, you've done work all around the world. Where, uh, to move on to a, to a totally different area, because um, um, we've got you here and it's so great to have you here, I just want to cover as much uh, ground as possible. Where do you see as being the area most in your need uh, in the world at the moment? Oh, wow. Um, well, uh, um, my, my discipline around the world yeah. is, is in shocking repair. Mm. So it's hard to believe, but a third of the world population die in circumstances where there is no death certificate. Really? Wow. Okay, so the death certificate <clears throat> is the first line of defence mm. against arbitrary mm. killing. Mm. So, and this is how important doctors don't quite realise how important they are. The, their signing of a death certificate is essentially an exit from criminal justice oversight. So you sign the death certificate <clears throat> and your body yeah. gets buried. Mm. But So doctors, every now and again, they go, oh, I'm not prepared to sign a death certificate mm. here, and the body goes into some sort of investigative system. Mm. For a third of the people in the world... A third of the people mm. in the world, that does not happen. So the body just gets buried by the family or by the local community and blah, blah. So, uh, so there is huge unmet need. So many countries have no forensic specialists. If there is in a country a forensic specialist, they might be in the capital and the rest of the country will be yeah. unserved by it. So this doesn't even begin to scratch the surface for things like sexual assault. Mm. I'm only just talking mm. about death. Mm. Uh, so when you want some <clears throat> proper involvement with the investigation of sexual assault, where are, they, where are the doctors, especially trained doctors? Well, for a large slice of the world, they're not there. Where are you heading to next? Which country? Oh, um, you could be going on holiday to Haiti, but well, actually, I've just come back from the Philippines, right? And um, <clears throat> uh, you probably, you know, have heard of the war on drugs yeah, yeah. in the Philippines. President Duterte's sort of populist signal yeah. policy of he went to the election saying, "I kill drug pushers," mm-hmm. and he got elected in a landslide. Mm-hmm. Um, the police killed somewhere between five and 20,000 people. Exact number is not known. Um, drug pushers, well, all these people were in slums and, um, you know, they were on probably just people that mm. police um, didn't like for one reason or another. And uh, so... Yeah, so that's uh, been there for just for the, with the United Nations. Well, I mean, you've you've had so much experience in so many different parts of the world. We've got to um, we're going to make you promise to come back on air, so we have at least five witnesses. <laughs> <laughs> would you would you come back on air and talk with, about some of this stuff yeah, with us? Because yeah, no, it's no, really no, quite fascinating. No, no. Thank you so much. That was, <clears throat> excuse me for coughing. That was Professor Stephen Cornett. Emeritus professor, as <laughs> Penelope says, we haven't had many emeritus professors on the show. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. We are joined with Associate Professor James Trower from Monash. Yep. Um, who is going to be talking about insomnia 
and sleep disorders, which I am very excited about. I think I'm very lucky I have good sleep, but I think it's something that pops up a lot in the therapy room and managing sleep and particularly perhaps over COVID and how that impacted a lot of people's sleep. But before we get into that, um, James, could you give us a little bit of an overview about how you got to where you are today and why, why you're interested in it? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, thanks very much for having me, first of all. But yeah, I mean, I'm a respiratory and sleep physician and also a public health physician. So it's fantastic to be on radio and talking about something other than COVID for a change, <laughs> which I was very relieved to hear you might be interested in. Um, and in Australia, I guess, for physicians, the sleep training is very closely linked to respiratory medicine, which is sort of interesting because, I, you know, like there's there's big breathing issues in sleep, of course. And so the reason why these things are linked together is because sleep apnea is such a big part of managing patients with sleep disorders. But there's so much more to it, of course. And so... Uh, I think, you know, to have a holistic approach to sleep medicine, you have to be thinking about all of these other issues and behavioural issues is just absolutely critical. And, you know, insomnia like, is just so common and it's it's just about... The, it's the commonest sleep-related reason for people to go to their GP, for example, so ahead of sleep apnea. And um, and I think, you know, sleep, sleep physicians who dive into this and think about it carefully are really important. Yeah, yeah so I guess to start off with, what is insomnia compared to sleep difficulties or where does that yeah. sit? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the first thing to talk about is, you know, if you sleep badly and you wake up in the morning and you function fine and it doesn't cause you any problems, it's not insomnia. It has to cause you some sort of, and it's not insomnia because it's not a problem. It has to yes, cause you some right. sort of like daytime problem. You have to have some sort of symptom or daytime impairment <clears throat> in order to, classifiers insomnia um there are there are examples around some of them you know you're a little bit skeptical about like people like kevin rudd and things who supposedly slept these very short periods of time at night and then could still function really highly during the day um there's probably a bit of myth bound up with the truth in some of these stories but that's a really important thing like you have to sleep less and you have to uh function poorly during the day and see it as a problem for yourself for it really to be insomnia in the first place yeah so it's about i guess your functional impairment but i know that uh, maybe i don't know but i thought that there was lack of sleep also has i guess medical and physical health issues or can yes, be related to physical yes. and health issues but if it I guess you can't see that so immediately in terms of waking up the next day and whether you can concentrate or not. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And if you sort of take it to any any extreme and if you're only getting, you know, I don't know, four or five hours of sleep, most people will have some sort of impairment as a consequence of that. And it's not just insomnia that impairs sleep. There's all sorts of things. But, um, yeah, you have to... And I guess also like the, the sort of nub of insomnia for me is the frustration with sleep and the mm. inability to sleep and... And the vicious cycle, the sort of positive feedback loop that you get where when you're awake at night, you're intensely frustrated. That's mm. the classic description of an insomnia. Somebody who's suffering from insomnia is that when they're awake at night, they're just frustrated. And because they're frustrated, they start to, you know, get all of those sort of fight-flight reactions yep. that go with that. And that further breaks down the sleep. And then as they come to go to bed each night, 
they often have this response that, oh, no, this is the, this is the thing that I can't do. This is the thing in my life that is just causing, driving me crazy and I can't get to grips with. And that ramps up even more as they mm. get towards bedtime. So that's, that's sort of the classic, for me, uh, description of insomnia. Yep. Um, and so it sounds like there are a lot of psychological processes in there that yeah. um, I guess kind of fits into my wheelhouse um, in terms of maintaining difficulties with sleep. But what, I guess, starts those difficulties in the first place? Yeah. And I mean, I guess what we're probably mostly, what I was just talking about then is chronic insomnia. Yeah. And everybody gets acute insomnia. Everybody gets, you know, a few nights here and there and you know you don't again you don't necessarily need to be worried about it if it's not causing you long-term impairment but often it's you know a short run of a few bad nights of sleep and then that process that I described where people get increasingly frustrated with their inability to do this thing and it's like as the classic thing is the harder you try for sleep <laughs> unlike everything else in life the harder you try the worse you are at it um and it once you sort of fall into that slippery slope, I think that's what's causing it for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And is there, I think, I've known from, I guess, professional experience that sleep is so foundational to, yeah, good mental health and functional um, impairment or functional non-impairment? Impairment? Impairment. Yeah. Impairment. Impairment. That, but I guess it can be so... I guess the frustration can also be compounded by trying to do these things yeah. to help break that cycle. Yeah. And that takes quite a long time to see, I guess, results or improvements. Yeah. Is there a, do you have a bit of an estimate about how long it might take? Well, first of all, you have to do the right thing, I suppose. Yes. The, yeah. the, the, it's one of these, it, the messaging is so difficult because it is true that if you sleep poorly, you're likely to have functional impairment and a whole load of, aspects of your life and your health might not be as good and other problems might emerge but just telling somebody oh you need to sleep more in order to get your health better is not necessarily a very helpful message no. to be dealing it's out. like telling someone to relax yeah like it's like george costanza shouting serenity now or something like it just doesn't necessarily help that much does it but um, yeah, so I guess you have to, first of all, get the message right and the instructions right as the treating doctor or the psychologist or the clinician about how they're actually going to improve their sleep, yeah. Okay, so somebody comes to you and they've got insomnia. You've ruled out any serious respiratory illnesses that mm-hmm. might wake them up at night. What next? Where, where do they go? Who? How do they, you know, unprogram themselves? It's really it's really difficult, Um and I think, again, a lot of the messages that we give out are not ideal because if we just focus on things like sleep hygiene, I don't necessarily think that's the solution because it doesn't deal with that problem that I was talking about, the sort of increasing frustration with not being able to do the thing that you want to when it gets to nighttime. And and sleep hygiene is often... Like, some aspects of sleep hygiene are important. Would, but, would you mind just going through what sleep hygiene is, Joe? Well, sleep hygiene is, like... It's often listed as, like, the first thing that GPs should be telling patients to do to mm. deal with their insomnia. And it basically consists of some pretty straightforward behaviours 
that most people with serious insomnia are not doing anyway about, you know, not taking certain drugs in the afternoon like caffeine and cigarettes and um, and stimulant medications and not napping during the day and, and just uh, and keeping the bedroom cool and quiet and dark and, mm-hmm. and all of those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess if you're doing anything, like most people with insomnia are not having three cigarettes before they go to bed and then going to bed with the curtains open. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just not that mm-hmm. helpful. Oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily that helpful uh, a message to be giving to people. And so, and there's not much evidence either that sleep, ther- sleep hygiene alone works. It only mm-hmm. really works when it's included as a package of mm-hmm. behavioural interventions. Yeah. Yeah. Is, so is blue light as much of the enemy as I might think it is? Oh, yeah. Well, you should avoid... Bright and blue light in the evenings. That's another sort of part of the sleep sleep hygiene hygiene instructions. Um, I mean, but I guess that then brings you into the whole circadian aspects of insomnia. Um, And uh, they can be important, but for me, they're not really the nub of what most people see as insomnia. Yeah. Um, Just to get some background information, how common is insomnia, James? Uh, well, I mentioned that it's the number one sleep-related cause of presentation to primary care to GPs in Australia. It is. It does depend a little bit on how you measure it, uh, and I spoken like a true academic. Guess at the <laughs> answering a question. <laughs> Yeah, I I used to know the percentage, and I'm not. Uh, and they, and you know, the the definition changes all the time, which makes it also hard to measure. But like, you know, super common, and and people, everybody knows that. I guess just going to the pub, how many of your friends yeah. have insomnia? Yeah. It's yeah. something that almost all of us deal with, at least for in the short term. Mm. Yeah, like before exams and stuff like that. Or, yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess I've got did a little bit of research on some research that was um, published in I guess I guess kind of like myths about sleep and I think that's a lot you know we we talk about perhaps particularly in healthcare is it possible to catch up on lost sleep? And, uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, there is the idea of a sleep debt is probably true for. A lot of people, like if you have a few nights of bad sleep, that's worse than just having one night of bad sleep. And and there's more impairment that come the longer that people stay up continuously. So, yeah, you can. Um, But a lot of these things, I don't know, like I feel like they're not getting... I'd like to, if I can, talk a little bit about the sort of what the nub of the treatment for Mm. insomnia is because I think... I've done a little bit of research into cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia, of which sleep hygiene is one component. But for me, the most important aspect of that is cutting out time awake in bed because that is what drives the frustration. And I don't know whether uh, yourself or some of the listeners had experience that that was the thing that improved things. But for me, when most of the patients that I see who have really done well... It's the other aspects of cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia that have that improve things, and that's come through cutting out those hours of time awake in bed. Mm. And, and when you were talking about the frustration, yeah. I guess there's a lot of cognitive... I was just... It was kind of like, oh, yes, the interventions or the cognitive interventions you can yeah. do for managing frustration and then, I guess, managing the physiological... Like the fight, flight, freeze and mm. um, trying to regulate that. Because, like, yeah, I guess adrenaline gets released and all that 
heart rate increase is not conducive yeah. to good sleep. Yeah, and the best way to do that is just not spending time awake in bed. And to me, that's the number one recommendation. Like, don't have a coffee at three o'clock in the afternoon is not what's going to help most people. Yeah. But don't go to bed, expect to sleep for eight hours every night, sleep for six hours and spend two hours, like, gnashing your teeth and looking at the clock. That mm-hmm. is, to me, that's the number one uh, most important aspect of the advice that's going to yep. help people get on track. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and something else that you started, you mentioned earlier on um, in this segment, and I've came across in the research as well, and I've kind of noticed as well in my own personal networks, is this reliance on um, Fitbits or your smartwatches to tell you how good a quality sleep you mm. had. And I think you mentioned that it's more about the perception <clears throat> of sleep quality and how you feel about your sleep or this research paper also kind of suggests that it's how you feel about your sleep rather than the sleep quality that can have a bigger role in terms of how you function the next day or and for a lot of people it's just about decreasing the focus on sleep and some of these things do the opposite yes like like i say like if you have if you have a doctor telling you don't drink a coffee at three in the afternoon you're spending your afternoon trying to work out whether your behaviors (laughs) are going to improve your sleep or not and you should just be forgetting about sleep just go and do what you need to do. And similarly, buying a Fitbit and monitoring your sleep every night is probably going to increase your focus on mm. sleep. And the people who sleep well are the people who just, like, don't think about it and mm. just go to bed and, like, whatever, and all of a sudden they're asleep. Yeah. Um, it's, so are those, do you think, scientifically, and I have my very big doubts about the accuracy of those, like a Fitbit or a, um Apple Watch on estimating how good a quality your sleep is, are they very accurate? Oh, yeah, um, I guess they've continued to improve the technology in recent years. I mean, they're probably moderately accurate at telling you whether you're moving around much. That's all they're really yeah. going to tell you, which usually does reflect your sleep to some extent. And they claim to be able to tell you how many hours of sleep that you've got. But like I say, I mean, it's not it's not going to drill down into the problem if insomnia is the problem, yeah. yeah. Can I just pick up on something? You said CBT, cognitive behaviour therapy, that's what you recommend for most people who don't have a medical cause for their insomnia. Who, how do people access that? Do you do CBT? Do psychologists or psychology registrars do CBT? <laughs> Psychiatrists? Yeah. I mean, where do you get that help from? Well, sleep physicians won't and aren't really trained to. So psychologists should, I guess, be the main port of call. But... It's like what the actual pathway to accessing that care is, is is quite tricky. It's not like we've given the huge burden of people with insomnia. It's not like we've got a sufficient pipeline set up for people to go and access decent CBT. So what do you tell people when, who need CBT for their insomnia? Well, I, I sort of had the luxury personally that I was working in a clinic that had a particular focus on behavioural sleep. Right. Issues And so we had psychologists linked to that clinic. And if you can find a clinic like that, and if you can find a psychologist who can take you through those steps, then I think that is probably the best approach. But we do need to think about other pathways and like internet based things and Mm. other Mm. strategies. Mm. I guess um, to be a little bit more steps, the steps of going to see a psychologist, I can talk about that. So you go to a GP, get a mental health treatment plan. They might do a um, screen of mental health, perhaps the depression, anxiety, stress or the K10 Mm -hmm. common measures. And then um, they can refer, write a referral letter to see a psychologist. Um, You don't have to get a referral letter from a GP, but I would thoroughly recommend it and advocate that for that because you do get a rebate if you're seeing a psychologist. I think it's 
increased actually from 89, but I guess, yeah, the financial year is like 92 something. If you see a general psych and hundred yes. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then there, there might be a gap um, and then a hundred and maybe 30 for a clinical psych, but there might be a gap on top of that. Um, but yeah, definitely do your own research to see if there is a psychologist who specializes in sleep, in sleep. disorders. So, yeah. like the APA website, the Australian Psychological Association, do they have like a list of sleep specialists? Um, the APS do have a find a psychologist function. Right. Yeah. Um, I haven't actually used it recently, so I'm not sure. And not sleep, every yeah. psychologist lists yeah. themselves. Yeah. And, you know, you've got to think about accessibility in terms of cost. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, telehealth is absolutely proliferated. Um, so increase the accessibility but and also the training of psychologists but cbt mm. is a pretty commonly trained mm. approach mm. but in terms of specifically for insomnia mm. um i yeah yeah in fact a mate of mine's doing a phd on cbti cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia yeah yeah that's um, what i'm talking about really yeah, yeah yeah um just very briefly in the time left you talked about napping and you said napping's bad and i've heard napping is bad basically from every single sleep physician i've ever spoken to in my entire life from my personal experience, and I realise I'm an N of one, <laughs> if I have a 20-minute kip, it totally improves my sleep that night. Um, mm. Am I the exception? Well, I don't know whether you're an exception, but if it was working for you, it's <laughs> yes. fine. You're exceptional. It's <laughs> funny. I guess what we're talking about with the outcome being good daytime function, if yeah. that's what you're getting out of it, then that's great. Oh, that's what I tell myself. Uh, that's why I like the whole concept of the siesta, you know, um, in, in Italy and in Spain, you know, during the hot periods of the day, people just go chill out for like an hour or so and they come back and they start till like, I know, one o'clock in the morning. Um, James, sure. again, we could spend hours yeah. talking to you about it. It's such a huge area. Talking about insomnia is like talking about, I don't know, health. It's yeah. just everything. Mm. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, there are so many questions each of us are vying to ask you. So I just want to say thank you for coming along. And, again, I'm going to get you to promise on air that you're going to come back. Oh, I'd love to come back. Great. Thank you so much. We're going to get you to sign our, uh, our promise uh, to return to radiotherapy. You have been listening to radiotherapy here. At the wonderful studios of 3RRR, you've uh, been listening to me, Dr. Mal, Dr. Kit Kat, also Nurse EpiPen, uh, Associate Professor James Trower, and also Stephen, Professor Stephen Cordner. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.